Let's pray before we dive in. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, your loving kindness, your grace, your mercy towards us. Thank you for the beauty of Sabbath and the rest that it brings, not just to us physically, but to our souls. Thank you that it reminds us of your salvation, of your plan to bring us rest eternally. Thank you that it reminds us that we do not have to work. It is through you that we find, ultimately, our hope and salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So some of you might be aware that um, I had a pretty, pretty crazy week, pretty incredible week, uh, pretty interesting week, let's put it that way. Um, so on Super Bowl Sunday, um, which by the way, little digression here, that's Super Bowl. Wow, the evil empire triumphs again, doesn't it? <laughs> It'll take a minute for that to sink in. Yeah, Marlene's really happy. She's a huge Patriots fan, and uh, she's all, oh, yeah, Patriots, Patriots, and like, don't gloat. Don't, you know, pride goeth before fall. We're not real sure when that fall is going to happen for them, but it's coming. They just keep seeing, they just seem to keep winning and winning. But uh, anyway, back to what I was really here to talk about. Um, um, I left on Super Bowl Sunday and took off to, uh, took off to the country of Lebanon, and um, um, yeah, went as a guest of an organization called World Vision. Some of you may be aware of that organization. It's a Christian humanitarian organization. And um, as a guest, I traveled with uh, about 10 other pastors, and we traveled to that area specifically to see what World Vision is doing in that part of the world, particularly as it relates to relief and care for um, Syrian refugees in that area. So you'll recall back uh, in December, we did Pack the Force, and a piece of Pack the Force was to pack 500 of these promise packs, or backpacks for um, Syrian refugee children. And we made that a part. We were intentional about that. And so I went specifically to um, Lebanon uh, to see the work that's being done there. Um, now, I didn't get to specifically see where our backpacks, uh, who they specifically went to, but I went to the area and I went to see the work that is being uh, done there. Really, really quick trip out on Super Bowl Sunday back last night. So um, I'm vertical, but I'm not exactly sure how long that's going to last, all right? So I'm running on fumes, but I had to be here today. Um, I knew what the trip itinerary was. I knew I'd be getting back and having to stand up and preach, but I wanted it to be fresh. I didn't want a week to go by before I, I had an opportunity to kind of share with you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into a little bit about the trip, and, and then we're going we're gonna to connect it to the passage for the day uh, that connects us to um, our series, Banner Year. So hang with me. But I just want to give you a little bit of an overview um, so that you understand kind of what's happening there and what's going on, in particular with the, uh, with the refugees and the work that I had a privilege uh, uh, to, to see up close and personal. So, so there's civil war that's happening in Syria, which is a neighboring nation uh, to Lebanon. With civil war, there comes a displacement of people, right? So um, there are people that are in Syria that fled to neighboring nations. Lebanon is one of them. Uh, there are other places that have taken in, uh, in the Middle East, that have taken in refugees. There are, there are places, uh, not to, uh, there are also places in Europe um, there are places, and even the U.S. has received a number of these Syrian 
uh, refugees. Uh, but Lebanon in particular, which is the place I got to visit, Lebanon in particular has taken in roughly 1.2 million of these refugees. And the technical term, the term that is used uh, for, in place of refugee is externally displaced persons. Externally displaced persons. These are people who have had to actually leave their home country and make their way to another place to find safety and to find resources so that they could survive. So what do you need when you're displaced? So imagine if you had to be, uh, if you had to just up and leave your house. If you, when you left church today, you didn't have a house to go to, you were just gonna be on your own with none of the amenities uh, that you normally would have. Well, you would need food, you would need hygiene, you would need shelter, you would need uh, housing, right? You need a place to stay, you need education for your kids. If all of that was taken from you and you had to go somewhere else, you would need education for your kids. You need protection for your kids because we know that children in particular are vulnerable in times of displacement. So you would need protection for your kids. You need medical care. You need medical care. So this is sort of the dynamic that's happening. You take um, 1.2 million people, you insert them into a country that's, uh, the population of Lebanon is about 4.2 million people. And you just added 1.2 million. It's not a huge country, but you add the fact that you have people who are in desperate need. And you easily, you can easily see how it creates quite a bit of crisis. And so that's what's going on. Add in this little interesting thing that I wasn't quite familiar with when I went there. And that is the history of tensions between Syrians and Lebanese. So here you have people who you don't particularly like and you have a history of conflict. And you're going to allow them to come into your country and live under your roof so to speak. That is, um, that is Lebanon. We visited a city because as we, we moved and made our way around to see exactly where World Vision was, is active and doing good work. We visited a city that has a population of 4,000 people. Get this. They have a population of Lebanese, 4,000 Lebanese in the city. But with the crisis, it's now hosting 10,000 Syrian refugees. So you have a town with 4,000 of your own people in it, and you're going to add 10,000. The Syrian refugees are going to outnumber your typical, your normal population. So you have guests, you have friends, new friends, forced friends, that now outnumber you, and they are in great need. Um, there's a picture. Andrew, if we could pull up those pictures, that first one. Um, this, is, um, this is a church in that city that I just mentioned where the refugees now outnumber the regular citizens there. And this is a church in, that has taken it upon themselves to not run away from the crisis and not shy away from helping people who they actually should be enemies with. And um, they, host the, they host the refugee children in their church, and they come in and they do basically what's the equivalent of a VBS. So these are little uh, refugee children from Syria, Muslim children, who are there singing Jesus songs. <laughs> they're, doing, they're doing all this stuff that has to do with, um, you know, kind of VBS and learning things about Jesus and so forth. And if you go to the next slide there, here's the pastor of this church. And we had a chance to sit with him for about 
about a couple, a couple of hours actually, we sat in this church. Again, this is the town where the, the refugees outnumber the regular people there. Um, and he was really, really awesome to sit and listen to. And one of the things that sort of rocked everyone's world, and these are a bunch of pastors. We sort of heard it all, seen it all. You know, you can't, you can't rock our worlds. But what really rocked us with this guy is that he really spoke to the reality of the tension between the two groups of people. That there's a, there really is a disdain and a dislike and, and in some cases a hatred. But he said, we, um, we want to embody the notion of love your enemies and embrace your enemies. And so one of the, one of the lines that just sort of stuck with me is that uh, he said before he left, he said, I love the Syrians. I love the Syrians. Here are these people who have essentially invaded my home. They outnumber me now. They've created a crisis for me. My life is no longer the way it was before they came. And besides that, I don't particularly like them. But I love them. And I'm going to love their kids. And I'm going to help them. And I want their kids to come to my church. And I'm going to, I want to sing and, and, and be with their kids and hang out with their kids. Here's another shot. Um of some of the children that, were, that are there. Um, but the, the next, let me move on. The next place that we got to visit though, um, because like I said, education is huge. If you take a, take a bunch of people and you move them, you, you, you relocate them to another place and they all have families and they all have children. What do you do with those kids? You just pluck them out of their schools, right? So now they gotta have a place to go to, to, go to school. And roughly half of, the, half of the refugees are children, by the way, that, that are in Lebanon. About half of them are kids. So go back to that one kid shot there, Andrea. So World Vision, recognizing the fact that education is so huge, they have these early, development, uh, early childhood development centers, education centers uh, spread out across the country. And they, they, um, they hold schools. So they'll bus the children from uh, the places where they live. And they'll bring them to the school and they'll have school and they'll do early childhood education. And we all know those of you who are education experts and developmental experts, you realize how critical it is to make sure that kids are learning very, very early on, right? If you can, continue, if you can educate them, give them their ABCs and one, two, threes and all the things that they need to learn, then you're going to have a better chance of making sure that they aren't vulnerable to uh, some of the things that children become vulnerable to in times of crisis, such as human trafficking, etc. So this is one of those early childhood. We got to visit there and hang out with the kids. And um, it, was, it was pretty powerful to see how engaged the staff is and, making, and intentional the staff is in making sure that these kids learn so that they don't become further victimized. Here's the crazy stat. Here's the crazy stat that sticks out in my head. Listen to this. The average time for displaced people Refugees to remain displaced, 17 years, 17 years. Can you imagine? I mean, I mean that, that's insane. Can you imagine just sort of living in a temporary state, sort of never having a place to rest, never having a place to call your own, always wondering, always sort of not sure about your own security, your own safety, and that of your children and your loved ones. Being destabilized for 17 years. Insane. Go to that next slide there. 
Um, this is um, where, where most of the refugees, the registered refugees, um, externally displaced people live in Lebanon are in places that they call ITSs. And an ITS is an informal tent settlement, informal tent settlement. So these are some of the best pictures I had um, with, of, of the informal tent settlements. And this, you can kind of see there that you're looking kind of down a, an aisle in one of these informal tent settlements there. Go to that next slide. And here's a gentleman sitting outside of one. You can just kind of see it's sort of put together with these different tarps and, and so forth. And it's, it really is an informal tent settlement. And the big thing about these settlements is that they're meant to be temporary. Again, it's not like you want people to come in and set up residence. You want people to sort of have a temporary livable experience so that when things calm down where they came from, they can go back there, Right. Which, by the way, I'll throw this out there. Most of the people I interacted with in these ITSs and around the country that were refugees don't want to leave, don't want to come here. They would rather go back to their home in Syria. That's pretty critical to uh, be aware of. And here's another shot. And those mountains behind this ITS, are, you're actually looking at the mountains of Syria. But you can just see there, they have to do life in this ITS. Those, those little shacks or those little shanties are the bathrooms um, right there. And then you see the ladies have the clothes out there. Is there one more shot maybe of the ITSs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a family that we got to be. We got to visit with two families in the... Um, uh, in the informal tent settlement. This is one I couldn't find the picture of the other, but you can see there, the mother is actually hidden. There's a little girl down there in the pink or orange or whatever that is. And mom is right behind that little girl who is extremely active, by the way. And then the sister is right next to her. And this was a, the family we got to just sort of interact. This is probably the most impacting part of the entire time was just to hang with some of the people who are living in these, these temporary sort of shelters, if you will. And um, this woman in particular, we, we asked her, we sort of specifically wanted to know, you know, what, um, what, are, what is your, your greatest challenge that you faced? And she said, just sort of living there. Trying to make sure that when it snows, because it snows quite heavily, that when it snows, the, the roof doesn't cave in on her and her children. Um, trying to deal with the reality of every now and then having a rat in the house, right? Every per you can relate to that sometimes, right? You get that little rodent in your house, everybody ah, freaks out. Well, imagine if you were out there, all right? Um, and then, you know, she just said it's just, um, it's just very, very difficult and it's not home. It's not home. Um, she's also worried about the electricity. Um, they, they have to have electricity, obviously, and they got to heat the, the, the tent. Um, they have to heat the, the shelter. And she said, I'm always worried about the water and the electricity and whether or not it's, we're going to be safe or my kid's going to get, you know, harmed because of, the, uh, because of the way things are set up there. But that's a family um, that we got to interact with and engage with there at the ITS. Is there one more picture there? No. All right. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. As we interacted and we talked with different people, one of the, the other two, one of the, the questions that we asked, a couple other questions that we asked is this, how long did you think you would be there? How long did you think you would be there? Most of the answers to that question 
were pretty interesting. Most of them said two to three weeks. Some of them said three to five months. Some of them have been there three to seven years in some of these temporary uh, settlements that they have. Here's the question that I always put forward to the people as well. How's your faith? How's your faith? And to a person, they each responded with enormous confidence. They said, well, we know it's God's will. God is still with us. These are some of the responses to the question of how is your faith? God is still with us. We know it's God's will. God is still with us. Interesting. Another quote, probably the the quote that sticks with me uh, from the time being there, uh, from a woman that's in one of the ITSs. She said this. She said, we no longer smile from our hearts. We no longer smile from our hearts. And as I've sort of processed it, uh, especially coming back on a long plane ride yesterday, the thought, returned, the thought came to me about the notion of hopelessness. And if you were to see or describe the epitome of hopelessness to a certain degree, and there are different images of hopelessness that we would look at around the world, because this is not the only crisis spot in the world, right? There are many places around the world that are desperate and, and, and very tragic and terrible. But this one is huge, and I don't think we quite understand just how huge it is. But when I was thinking about the notion of hopelessness, the song from the musical Annie came to mind. <laughs> right? You know which one I'm talking about. The sun will come out tomorrow. Right? Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. And for the life of me, I could not figure out when on earth there would be some sun in those ITSs. Is there a tomorrow for those folks? It's been seven years for some. According to the averages, they'll be there another 10. That potentially the sun will come out for them. And then what do they ultimately return to in a country that will be desolate and ravaged and torn apart because of war? You could lose a generation of people. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun. But will there be tomorrow, tomorrow? We all know these words. Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you. Tomorrow, you're only a day or 50 million years away. Other words in that song, hang on until tomorrow. Another line in that song says, when I'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely, I just stick out my chin and grin. I don't know how many people grin in the ITS. We no longer smile from our hearts. I can't help but see a bit of a connection between our stories as Christians, between our story as Christians and their story, really, right? If you think about it, we too live in a bit of an ITS. 
an informal tent settlement. Now, some of y'all have some pretty nice tents, right? And right around here in the, these neighborhoods and these suburbs here in Central Florida, you and I have some pretty nice tents. They're meant to be temporary. If we're honest as Christians, we understand that they're meant to only be temporary settlements for us, right? However nice they are. We're also externally displaced persons. You ever thought about that? The song that we sang this morning during the worship set, this world is not our home, right? We have an informal tent settlement. We are externally displaced people. You could basically call us Christian refugees. Now that isn't to take anything away from the reality of the crisis that exists, exists for people in situations of dire need and crisis. But it is to say, you and I to a certain extent can relate to their plight at least on a spiritual level. And we wonder too, don't we? We wonder about the clouds that have rolled into our own lives. We wonder about that elusive tomorrow and will it ever come? We wonder about, especially in Seventh-day Adventist settings, because you guys, we are big on the second coming. Well, Jesus hasn't come yet, and I still have to deal with the clouds. And sometimes my smiles don't come from my heart anymore either. You ever ask the question, when will today end so that I can have my tomorrow? When will today end so we can all have our tomorrows? Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. Follow along with me. Um, God's people need a tomorrow. They absolutely need a tomorrow. They need to hear a message that what they're currently going through isn't going to define their entire existence. It won't be the end of them. They've been displaced, right? They've been in exile in Babylon. They have suffered instability and hardship. They live in a temporary state. They are uh, in a crisis situation. And at the time of the writing of this particular chapter of Isaiah, this thing is just beginning. So they've got a long road to go. And they need a little bit of hope. And so God inspires Isaiah to write. And throughout this last half of the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of writing about hope and a future. That something, that there is something, that there is a tomorrow that will come. And these words from Isaiah 62 and verse 1. Check this out. When will we have our tomorrow? When will tomorrow come? God hints at it here. He says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep quiet. I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines, catch this, shines out like the dawn. What is dawn, people? It's a new day. It's a new day. God sends Isaiah, and with the same enthusiasm, with the same conviction that he had to let them know that they were going to be exiled in the first place, that hard times are coming, you brought it on yourself, he sends Isaiah into that same situation with the same energy, with the same conviction, tell my people that a new day will indeed come, that things will change, that this is not the end for you. 
that a new day will come, that your tomorrow will emerge. He says, till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch, and it's going to be big. It's going to be big. Now, as awesome as that truth is, as, as, as you and I as believers, as much as we believe that spiritually for ourselves, that uh, tomorrow will indeed come. The truth of the matter is people still wake up and they're living in the ITSs. You wake up and you live in the reality of your own brokenness and pain. And you look around you and you look around the world and you still see brokenness and chaos and crisis and pain. What word is there for us even as we live in this awkward tension between today and tomorrow. Isaiah 62 verse 2. I'll read verse 1 again and we'll read verse 2. Follow along with me. For Zion's sake, again, here's Isaiah with the word that something better is coming. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. Verse 2. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your Glory, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Two things come here as we begin, as we live between this tension of today and tomorrow. It, it, I believe it tells me this, particularly as I look at verses one and two. Listen for God's voice and hear his inspiration. Isaiah says, I cannot keep quiet. So that means God is speaking. God is shouting. God is saying something. Listen for God's voice and hear his inspiration. Slow down long enough to just simply listen and hear from God. What is God speaking into your life? What words are you overlooking or overrunning in the rat race that could in fact give you encouragement and hope and, and ground you in the truth and the reality that tomorrow will indeed come? Do we spend enough time simply listening to this God who wants us to know and believe at the deep, at the depths of our soul that tomorrow will come? Listen to his voice and listen for Get this, listen for inspiration. Now as Adventists, again, we're, we're really big on lectures that give us instructions that tell us how to live, what to do, what not to do. But I want you to listen for that too, that's important. But I want you to listen for inspiration, right? Listen for how the God of the universe will infill you and call you to something much bigger than yourself. Don't just listen for instruction. Listen for inspiration. Those who live by the Spirit, that unseen force of God at work in our souls and in our lives, is sort of a mysterious, mystical thing. And dare I say mystical? And I have been as church people. Goodness. We don't always know what God is doing. As the, as the wind blows to the east and also to the west, the Spirit of God is kind of a, kind of a mystery. 
Don't just listen for instruction. God is speaking into the reality of the brokenness and the crisis and the ugliness of this world as we live in the tension between today and tomorrow. And he says, listen to my voice, but don't just listen for instruction. Listen for inspiration. As he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he's, he, Isaiah's exhorting them. He's, he's, he's confronted them with their failures and he's told them the truth and the reality of that. But he's also saying, listen, you're going to be called great. You're going to return to a place of glory, a place that's bigger than you, a place that's better than you've ever been before. Listen for God's voice. Hear his inspiration. And here's just a real quick side note for the cynical ones. Suck it up, buttercup is not inspiring. <laughs> That's what was floating around on the internet, you know, after a certain election that happened in our country. And this is, these aren't political statements. This is simply to say that as Christ followers, don't fall into these cynical attitudes and ideas and say, well, people just get it together. Not inspiring. Doesn't call us to something more. Doesn't call us to anything bigger. Isaiah 62 verses 3 and 4. Uh, listen for God's voice and hear his inspiration. Here's the second thing. Look at it in Isaiah 62, 62 verses 3 through 4. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land and you will be married. There's a crown of splendor that you and I are called to, a royal diadem. So that which, so, so Isaiah draws this contrast between that which is desolate and broken down, that which has been sort of destroyed and laid waste. And he says, you will have a crown of splendor now and there'll be a royal diadem. You're going to sparkle and be beautiful. He's going to take you from, from the ashes to, to beauty, right? And there's going to be, you're going to matter. And you're going to be important. There's going to be great delight that God takes in you. As we live between the tension of today and tomorrow, live in such a way as to create beauty where there is brokenness, people. Basically, what Jesus was getting at in the, in the New Testament when he said, you are a light to the world, shine. I'm going to make you beautiful again. Yes, I've taken everything away from you. And, and you, you probably deserve, you absolutely deserved it. You made some foolish mistakes. But I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back. And you're going to be better than ever. But for you, I want you to be beautiful in the place that you are. Where, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you do. But as you listen to God's voice, as he speaks into your reality, where can you make things more beautiful than what they are? Where are the ashes that you see each and every day? Where are the, where are the places that are like the ITSs? Where are the, where are the orphans? Where are the widows? Where is the ugliness? Where is the trafficking? Where is the squander, the squalor? Where's the indignities? 
Can you, as one who is being made beautiful again, step into a place and make beauty from the ashes that exist? Can you shine? One of the things that my kids and my wife came up to do while, we were, while I was in Lebanon was to take our Polaroid camera, which by the way, Polaroid's making a big comeback. It's pretty cool. Remember the old school when some of y'all old enough to remember these big gigantic things and it clicked, and big, yeah, loud noises. They made smaller versions now, actually fit in your pocket and it'll print the picture out the size pretty fascinating. But they said, take these, take the Polaroid, take a bunch of film and take pictures of some of the kids and give them to them. They can be reminded they can be reminded of their own beauty, right? And I did that. It was a huge hit. <laughs> huge. All these little, little Syrian refugee children come running up to me. Take my picture, take my picture, yeah. And I would take their picture and hand it to them. So all over the ITS, the two ITSs that we visited in, in Lebanon, there are these Polaroid pictures stuck on the side of a tent. And I say that's beautiful. I say that's beautiful. Where can you go and help people find dignity and help them to become self-sustaining? Where can you lend out of the depth of resources that you and I experience and have in this country and in this culture? Where can we lend our resources to make sure that others have a more beautiful life? Where can we shine? Which, by the way, when we shine, the kingdom of God shines. When we shine, like the church that holds those little VBS-type things, the kingdom of God shines. James reminded us of this. He says in James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Religion that God our Father accepts. We're big on religion. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress might I add, their displacement to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Finally, Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 through 12. This is sort of the climax of the entire chapter. This is big. This is huge. Isaiah is saying, look, something big is coming. A new day is coming for you. A new day will dawn Everybody get prepared for this. God's people are coming home, baby. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones. Get all the obstacles out of the way. Raise a banner for the nations because I'm calling everybody to me. Even if they live in Lebanon or even if they live in Syria, the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your savior comes. See his reward is with him. And his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after. I didn't leave you alone. I came after you. The city no longer deserted. You see, the most common thing. <clears throat> the most common thing I heard from the displaced people that I interacted with. Is that they wanted to go home. <clears throat> they wanted to go home. Now, here's what I think. 
that if indeed we can think about how to listen to God's voice and respond and hear his inspiration, and if indeed we can learn to live in such a way that we create beauty, if indeed we want to survive the awkward tension of living between today and tomorrow, the biggest thing that has to happen in our souls is the desire to go home. The thing that keeps you going more, the thing that should keep us going more than anything else is that I want to go home. I will survive the hell on this earth if indeed I know that I get to go home. The question becomes, do you want to go home? Do you recognize the validity of the notion that you are just simply a temporary resident here in this earth? <clears throat> that you're just here for a short time. You see, as long as you never say, whoo, man, this is good living here. I got it made. I'm set. As long as you never fall to that place and get comfortable and think that this is all that there is, you're probably in a good place. Do you want to go home? Do you want to go home? How big is that want to go home? So pray for divine agitation. Pray that God will never allow you to become so comfortable in this place that you forget about home. Pray that God will never let you become so cynical that you think that there is no home. Never lose sight of the fact that though God will bring you back, just as he did his people, that there is a return to a better place, that your life does get to be restored in the here and now, but never lose sight of the fact that there's an even bigger return. <clears throat> Isaiah says, see your savior comes, see his, re his reward is with him. There is a bigger return to come. Our desire to go home is wrapped up in that return. Do you want to go home? You'll endure whatever. You will, you, will, you will make it here if the desire and the want in your heart is to go home. I'll end with this. So I remember living in Salt Lake City. <clears throat> Salt Lake City is a huge population of, of, of LDS, of, of Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They send their missionaries, their young people, they, live, they send their missionaries, their males out for two years. They send the young ladies out for about 18 months. But those missionaries get to return home. And so the Salt Lake City Airport is, this, is often this big scene of mi returning missionaries. They're coming home. They're coming home. And you'll see them there. I flew in and out of there multiple, multiple, multiple times over the years that we were there. And you get there and you see balloons and teddy bears and big groups of people. And you, say, you see signs that say, welcome home, elder so-and-so. Welcome home, elder so-and-so. It is a big to-do. And people are cheering the kids coming down the stairs. Ah, it's great. Because my kid is home and this person that we love is home. And I got a little envious of that at times. I really did. I never got big greetings home like that. But there are times when my family was returning from a trip. And there are times when, when, when I was like, all right, it's on now. I'm going to go out and I'm going to welcome my family home. And that's a pretty cool deal. Yeah, your kid's coming home, but my family's coming home. 
And so I'd get up in front of all the people with their signs, and I'd elbow them out the way. My family, welcome home. Here's the deal, folks. Here's the deal. Your heavenly Father longs to have you return home. He can't wait. It's a bigger, it's a bigger return than you could ever imagine. The reason it's so big is because he is, he is absolutely invested in you. You are, his, you are his children. You are his family. We are his sons and his daughters. He wants us to come home. And he will pull out all the stops. And he'll await and will await his return. And he can't wait to see you and me. Father, may we long to be reunited with you. May you help us to live in the awkward tension of today and tomorrow. But more than anything else, may we long to see your face because we know that when you come, all of these things come to an end and you will shine bright and you will set everything right and everything will be okay. But in the meantime, Father... Use us where you would have us to be used. Bless us so that we might be a blessing. We just pray, Lord, that you would come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next Sabbath. <laughs>